Sensors for Autonomous Driving with Robots, a podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to episode 176 of the Robots Podcast. Yana is on holiday, so I'll be filling in. My name is Audro Nash, and today's episode will focus on the sensors used in autonomous automobiles with Christoph Stiller from the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology. But first, here's the news with Christine. Thank you. The Google-owned robotics company Boston Dynamics just released a video of a new four-legged robot named Spot. Spot is an evolution of their previous four-legged robots, Big Dog and Wildcat, but it is much smaller and lighter. It stands about waist-high and weighs approximately 160 pounds or 72.5 kilograms. Another difference is that while Big Dog and Wildcat have internal combustion engines, Spot is electrically powered and thus is much quieter. In the video, Spot is kicked hard and in a few seconds regains its balance. According to its creators, Spot could eventually help with search and rescue, mapping or accessing disaster zones. Flyability, a spin-off company from LIS, EPFL and NCCR Robotics, has won the 1 million US dollar inaugural UAE Drones for Good competition with Jimbal the world's first crash-resilient drone. Unlike other rescue drones where colliding with obstacles may cause crippling damage, Jimbal bounces off of obstacles. This is because it is protected by a rotating carbon fiber cage, hence the name Jimbal. The creators say that the design was inspired by the sight of a fly bouncing against a window. With their winnings, Flyability will be able to continue to develop Jimbal. For more information on quadruped robots and drone startups, visit robohub.org. Autonomous cars use various sensors to stay on the road, and often, these sensors are very expensive. This high cost is one of the major barriers before autonomous vehicles can be manufactured for profit. In this interview, I, Audro Nash, speak with Professor Christoph Stiller, who is working to safely navigate autonomous automobiles with sensors that are significantly less expensive. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? My name is Christoph Stiller. I'm professor in mechanical engineering at Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany. Can you tell me the goal and motivation behind your research? We're working on autonomous cars, so that's cars that drive themselves, and in particular we focus on um, computer vision for vehicles, so cars that see um, their environment, and on trajectory planning for vehicles, so on the decision on where to drive given the world that we see. What kind of sensors do you use on your vehicles? Well, our main sensors um, are video cameras, but we also do experiments with LiDAR and, and radar sensors. You have a car named Berta, and it's 
does not have roof-mounted sensors. Can you tell me a bit about that? Berta was developed together with uh, Mercedes-Benz, um, and um, the goal was to have only close-to-the-market sensors. And in particular, we only used um, uh, cameras that were looking around the vehicle and radar sensors, which came from a series production um, level. So no expensive GPS, no expensive lighter sensors, and in particular, nothing on the roof. What is the motivation behind not using roof sensors? Our other vehicle, anyway, was driving with roof sensors, and um, those sensors have been quite expensive. So we had a, a lighter sensor, um, which cost us about $70,000 each, and we had a um, high-precision GPS and with an inertial measurement unit, and that cost us about the same amount of money on top. And so that's at least far from a serious production. Are there other disadvantages to using roof sensors? Um, for example, they get dirty. Is yes. that a concern? Yes, of course. Um, if a roof sensor um, um, is not cleaned, um, it will get dirty, just like when you drive with your car, your windshield after a few hundred kilometers looks so dirty that you can't look out anymore. And the same happens to a camera lens. If you drive with your camera lens for a long time or with a LiDAR sensor, which is also an optical system, um, the lens of that system gets contaminated with dirt or insects. Um, and so um, the, vehicle get, the sensor gets blind and you get... Um, in the best case, you notice that you can't drive autonomous anymore. Now, where does your sensor... If, it, if they're not on the roof, where are they in the car? Well, we look out of the window as a human driver, so they're very close to the roof um, um, in and behind the windshield. Uh, so when the driver gets irritated by a dirty window and he engages the wind wipers, then um, our camera is also cleaned uh, because it's in the wiper um, area. What other sensors do you have in addition to the vision system that watches what's happening ahead of the car? We also have radar sensors, and this is actually the... Many cars already have one radar sensors. We equipped that vehicle with three sensors, uh, three radar sensors, uh, which came from serious production uh, because we needed a larger viewing angle um, for those sensors so that we can, could look into the side of the traffic area and would see whether from an intersection there would be an oncoming, oncoming other vehicle that we would need to consider. And also we use a standard GPS unit, um, but it has a precision of about 20 meters, so it's something like you have in your smartphone. So it's not an expensive unit, but it's only a low-precision unit to give us a very coarse um, positioning, um, because we do use maps as well, so we pre-record maps, and um, those maps tell us um, about where to drive, where, where are the lanes that we are supposed to take and what possibilities do we have, who has precedence at what intersection, where are traffic lights. All this information is stored in maps. Now, you mentioned in your abstract that these sensors, the ones you're using now on Berta, are close to market. What do you mean by this? 
Well, it means that those sensors are either in the market, but not in the number that we use, like for the radar sensors, um, or it means that uh, the video cameras actually do, ha there are some in the market already, but ours, of course, require particular um, algorithms to analyze the data, and that's done on um, personal computer-like hardware in the trunk, um, and, and of course, we would need to um, bring that down to some embedded system hardware for the processing, but that's something that could be done in a reasonable amount of time. So what are some of the major barriers to bringing these sensors to market? The sensors could be brought to market. The main barriers to bring the whole system to market would be that right now we need a safety driver in very rare situations um, who would um, intervene in case of very crazy uh, or rare situations that were not predicted, like if you have a um, if you have an emergency vehicle coming on to you or some um, some other situation uh, which is very difficult to detect and where you where you need the human intelligence to actually uh, remain a safe um, state of the vehicle. Can you tell me a bit about the real-time decision-making that your systems do? Yes, the vehicle first analyzes all the sensor signals, so it looks, um, first of all, where it is on the map with a high precision, so it uses GPS for a course, 20-meter precise position, and then it does visual localization, so it looks for landmarks in the environment, like it, it could see a window of a house, or it could see a tree in the environment, and then, like humans do, uh, the system is able to localize itself, just that our um, sense, our visual localization is very precise, so we get a precision of about 5 centimeter accuracy, so we know highly uh, accurate where we are. Then we look at the map, um, what lane we're on, we see the lane boundaries, um, and we see any obstacle that's on our driving corridor, and so other cars, pedestrians, bicyclists, parked cars, or any other static obstacles which were not expected on our driving corridor, and then we plan a pass which does not collide with any of the static or moving obstacles if possible. We first try to stay on our lane. If that's not possible, we have a decision unit that uh, could allow us to, ta to move to another lane, um, let's say an adjacent lane that moves in the same direction if there is a gap. Um, and if that's not possible either, um, we could even decide to go on the oncoming lanes, on the, on, on the lane which actually is meant for driving in the opposite direction if there is no vehicle coming in that direction. And the, if none of those possibilities is working, of course, we'll stay and wait until the situation resolves. In the real world, the maps that you correlate all of your sensor data with sometimes are unreliable. Can you talk about those challenges? Yes. Uh, right now, if our map is wrong, for example, somebody built a construction zone on that area, our supervisor driver has to react. So we have a safety driver on board who doesn't do anything except 
in an unexpected situation, like when the map is wrong, when we have an emergency vehicle or whatever, um, is unexpected. And um, of course, in the long term, if you bring that to a market, you can't have a safety driver um, deliver that with every car. Um, so the um, long-term goal is then to keep the map up to date, and that will be done by um, community um, mapping. So there will be the whole crowd of cars that are equipped with sensors would communicate slight changes in the map already to the infrastructure. In the infrastructure, a server would accumulate that information, and if many vehicles tell, look, here's a change, uh, let's say lane has moved slightly due to construction, then the map will signal that to um, vehicles that um, follow, and so each vehicle has an accurate map and an up-to-date map of the environment. So it's essentially crowdsourcing the development of a map for all the cars to pull from. Yes, it's a crowdsourcing method. Mm-hmm. All right. What was your experience with the Grand Cooperative Driving Challenges, the series of them? Yeah, there's a large series which actually started in the U.S. by the DARPA in 2004 and 2005. There were um, grand challenges where the goal was to drive through the desert autonomously. Um, then in 2007, there was an urban challenge which led through, a, I would call it, suburban area like with, with low houses and almost no trees and no or very little traffic lights and very little traffic signs, no bicyclists. So it was not a fully normal traffic situation, but at least a mock-up of that. Um, and uh, again, vehicles had to drive autonomously. And in 2011, there was the first cooperative driving challenge that took place in Holland. Um, the goal there was to drive in a tight platoon of vehicles, so keep a very low distance to the predecessor of six meters. Six meters is like uh, if you drive 100 kilometers an hour, that is about 34 meters per second, um, and that means it's 0.2 seconds that you that you have a distance to your predecessor. And, of course, that's impossible for a human driver to react in such a short time. So um, the vehicles could only be driven autonomously. Um, the first vehicle would do very harsh braking, and um, all the other vehicles um, then, of course, had to react um, in real time to avoid a collision. Um, the vehicles needed to communicate. That's what was called cooperative challenge. They um, needed, they had to communicate their position and velocity, um, and they could, uh, if they wanted, communicate more, like the acceleration, um, which of course is highly beneficial um, to following vehicles. Uh, they know well the vehicle in front of me is braking now, so you can already react very fast um, to that situation and brake yourself. What were some of the major challenges you encountered in the DARPA Cooperative Driving Challenge? Well, the major challenges um, were the short reaction time and um, the fact that the teams were heterogeneous. So it was not one system approach, developing one control law for all the vehicles, which would then... um, have a guaranteed string stability so that um, all the platoon would be stable, but you didn't know the control laws of the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the challenge was to have a very robust system which drives 
um, safe um, without knowing what strategy others have. What did you learn from this? Um, we learned that um, it was possible in such scenarios um, to damp oscillations, damp very severe braking oscillations. So we had almost full braking maneuver of the first car and the platoon of many cars following um, from a s very small car um, to a truck um, and all those vehicles were able to avoid a collision um, through timely braking and through communication. So we learned that communication can can help to avoid what, what we call um, um, shock waves in traffic. So that uh, is the effect that if one car breaks in a platoon, um, quite often the Each following car has to brake stronger than its predecessor and eventually either one car can't brake as strong as it should so there's a collision um, or um, it comes to a full stop and then uh, you have a traffic congestion. I'm interested in your perspective on the ethics of driving autonomous vehicles. What, what do you think about the delegation of responsibility between the driver and the manufacturers of the autonomous car sensors. Yeah, that will shift. Right now, for most accidents, the car, uh, car driver is responsible. So most accidents in traffic are due to human fault. And very small number of traffic accidents comes um, from the responsibility of a um, construction fault by the car um, manufacturer. In, of course, the more... Um, autonomous maneuvers we introduce into the market, the more is the likelihood that um, one of those maneuvers um, is ill-designed and could cause a crash. And in that case, of course, the car manufacturer would be liable. If in the long term the vehicle would drive fully autonomously so that the driver could read newspaper, um, then, of course, the car manufacturer is responsible for all traffic accidents um, that happens while he's driving autonomously. It would be while the user is driving, they are responsible if the car gets in an accident. Yeah. And then when the autonomous car takes over, then it's the manufacturer's liability. Yes, that's my understanding that, um, of liability, that you're only liable for what you really do. And, and if the car manufacturer automizes a car, then of course a driver, um, to my understanding, cannot be responsible. There may be what um, a situation which is called a highly automated car, um, and that means that the car, let's say on a highway, drives autonomously. The driver is allowed to read a newspaper, but uh, before some situation comes that is not handleable by the car, like a construction site. The vehicle tells the driver, look, you have to take over in 10 seconds. And then, of course, for the portion where the vehicle drives autonomously, the car manufacturer is responsible for the piece that the um, driver drives manually. The driver is responsible for his driving. And in between... Um, in the time where the vehicle says, well, you have to take over, this is a responsibility of the driver to be ready to take over. So he can't sleep on the real seat or be drunken or whatever. So he has to be ready to take over in such a situation. What kind of timeline 
do you believe for autonomous cars? That's a very difficult question. Um, actually, we do have some autonomous functions in the market already. Like uh, most upper-class cars already do automated um, emergency braking um, before an imminent collision. And uh, for pedestrians, they even do automated evasive steering. And those functions will emerge. So... Today, there are very rare situations when the vehicle is certain that it can handle the situation better than the driver. And these situations will grow, the number of those situations. So um, the vehicle will get into more and more um, situations and understand them better than the driver. And if it understands that the situation is critical, at least then it will take over and avoid the collision or at least minimize the velocity of the collision and therefore the severity of the collision. Um, And eventually all those functions will come to the point where um, the car can drive autonomously everywhere and any time and the driver doesn't even need to be in the car. Um, But that will take a long time. I know there are many major challenges before autonomous cars are integrated into society. What do you believe is one of the big ones? In my um, experience, the most difficult thing is to understand a situation, right? So to get an awareness of the situation. Uh, A difficult example would be um, consider a pedestrian walking to the curbstone and then stopping for a moment and then human drivers with a very high precision can predict whether or not the driver the uh, pedestrian will walk on the road or will stop and um, wait for the vehicle to pass and you see that on many small features like you look whether the pedestrian looks towards you you um, consider the age and uh, you consider whether the the person is having earphones is not paying attention and all those small features together tell you whether you should brake blow your horn or just drive through and to do the same would be very difficult with the current state of the art for an autonomous vehicle wrapping up What do you think is the future of robotics? As far as cars are concerned, um, I'm certain that autonomy will come. And in parallel, there will be cooperativity coming. So vehicles will communicate uh, with each other and uh, use that to harmonize their trajectories. So um, cars would follow each other at closer distance and have maneuvers that are communicated with each other so you know exactly what the others are doing and that would harmonize traffic flow a lot of course improve safety Um, and in the very long term I expect that traffic then would be harmonized so much that the flow of traffic would rather look like a fish swarm movement as compared to the chaotic movement that we have on roads today Thank you And that's all for today. As always, you can visit us on robotspodcast.com to find out more about autonomous vehicles 
and view all of our past episodes. Our next podcast will air in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Sensors for Autonomous Driving with Robots, a podcast for news and views on robotics.